Hey friends, welcome to Drink Sober Not Boring. My name is Era. I'm a former bartender and a current recovering alcoholic. Each week we'll be joined by a different guest from the non-alcoholic space. These remarkable individuals will bring their unique stories and perspectives, shedding light on a world beyond alcohol full of joy, growth, and endless possibilities. Together we'll navigate the challenges, celebrate our victories, and create a supportive community that thrives on compassion, understanding, and resilience. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving a review. It helps others looking for support find us more easily. But here's what matters most. If you know someone who's currently struggling, someone who could benefit from feeling less alone in their journey, I ask you to share this podcast with them. You don't have to choose between fun and feeling good anymore. Introducing Joyous, the award-winning non-alcoholic wine that tastes so good, even wine snobs are raising their eyebrows. And Joyous isn't just delicious, it's a champion. At the prestigious 2023 New York World Wine and Spirits Competition, Joyous snagged not one, not two, but three incredible medals. Their sparkling rosé brought home double gold, best in class. Their Cabernet Sauvignon, a bronze, and even their standard sparkling wine took home a silver. That's a win for flavor, a win for your well-being, and a win for supporting a woman-owned business. If you're ready to ditch the FOMO and discover the joy of an award-winning non-alcoholic wine, visit drinkjoyousus.com and use code DRINKSOBERNOTBORING for 10% off your first order. Celebrate, connect, and feel your best, all without the hangover. Joyous, it's wine reinvented. This episode of Drink Sober Not Boring, we have David Shamzad. He is the CEO of SG Real Estate, forthcoming author and a mental health recovery advocate. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. I'm excited. So do you want to start at the current situation and we can work our way back? Or how long sure. have you been sober? How about that? Let's see. It has been my last drink was 11 years and 11 months ago. Hell yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But I did, I did not, when I, when I first stopped, the goal was 30 days. That's, that's, that was, it was 30 days. I never thought that I'd make it this far, but keep chipping away at it. And it's absolutely possible. So yeah, yeah just to give you like, I like to kind of start at the end of the story a little bit and, and what my life looks like right now. And then talk, then maybe talk about how it got here as it relates to uh addiction and, and recovery so like right now i'm the ceo of the company i started uh 2012 just started it by myself in an office sublet here in the east bay uh and you know a, a little over a decade later we've got um got about 50 employees and we got our own no more sublet we got our own big office here and yeah and we're doing a lot of great work in investment real estate and uh, brokerage property management, a whole vertically integrated firm. And I have, I have an amazing wife who a partner who is a big part of my story. And we have the most adorable 18 month old uh -huh. little boy. Uh, and, and that's where I'm at now, but my life looks nothing like it did it in the darkest days. And, uh, and those days were when I was, um, uh, severely addicted to alcohol and that that addiction was a just direct result of 
self-medicating bipolar disorder, which I was diagnosed with in my early 20s. And I can kind of get started there if you want. I mean, that's. I was going to say one thing before we start. The sure. in between the time frame that you got sober and the time frame that you started this company, I'm sure that's no that's no coincidence. <laughs> no, no, it was uh, it was not a coincidence at all. No, I'm not great at math, but I can do that. That I mean, and that's and that's just it, and, and and I'm sure we'll get more into it. But uh, I think like the big takeaway from 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 my journey has been like what we're like what we're really all capable of once those handcuffs come off and. You know, if we have a sober mind and we have, you know, a clear mind with purpose, like we're just capable of so much more than, than we thought compared to the days when we're, you know, dragging our asses into work at like nine, 10, you know, with sunglasses on because we look like hell. Like, and that's, that's just, you think that you're, think that you're, you know, functioning, uh, in that when you're in that space, because like you can really convince yourself that things are fine. Like, oh, I'm not getting in the way of work. No, I'm good. I made it to work. I'm not getting, drinking is not getting in the way of my career. But then stop and like, see what happens. And like, your shit will, will take off. So yeah. So when I was, so I grew up in the Bay area and, um, I got to know alcohol when I was like very young, there was a, just a lot of drinking in my family. I got a, a lot of drinking in my family and remember i still remember the first time i ever got drunk like it to me it wasn't just like trying something out it was like i was intoxicated like i felt like i found the thing that had been missing from my life you know when i was 13 and it was just it just it it hit different as they say yeah. like it just it just it did and and it always did and like throughout high school uh, I got into some big trouble with it, but I also, you know, was able to stop drinking at, at a few different points in high school and do well enough to like get into college. And I ended up getting into Dartmouth and New Hampshire, which was great. And like the first couple of years were, were going really well. And then like when I was around like yeah, 20 or 21, um, yeah, I started, I started just getting depressed. Like I didn't know I was getting depressed. I didn't really know what that meant or what that felt like. I just knew that like, I started feeling like, like really fucking sad more often than not. And the, uh, I knew, I knew alcohol already. I knew it well, and I knew that it made me feel better. And so when I, when I felt like I couldn't get out of bed, when I felt like I couldn't have a conversation without like an overwhelming anxiety, I knew that alcohol was like the solution for me to that, you know? So I, when I was having spells for a few days or so, when I felt really depressed, I didn't think really much about why or what was going on. I'm just like, okay, cool. Like alcohol is, is going to be totally. going to save the day here. Yeah, there's a solution. And then like if, at the same time, what if I wasn't feeling, I, I would have days where I would feel really depressed, but then I would have days where I was like, well, if not depressed at all, I was like, just felt high as a kite on my own, just internal energy and I didn't really understand that either. I just thought I was excited or having a good day. And when I felt like that, I would drink too, because that just, when I was that revved up, like I wanted to, it just, alcohol just made it that much more exciting and intoxicating. So I just, I was having mood swings that I didn't really know. And alcohol made all of it feel a lot better and a lot more tolerable, particularly when I was feeling depressed, particularly when my mind was racing with like thoughts that are, that I couldn't control. Uh, 
And this went on and it got worse and worse. And by the time I was, and then like the inflection point for me was like when I was in my early twenties after college and I was working, my first job was, I was a youth counselor for at-risk kids. So I worked with all these kids at a residential facility. Like I lived there and, uh, yeah, I mean, it was intense and I, I would go through phases where like, I didn't really need to sleep and I didn't need to eat much. And I had, I just had a motor that was, I, I was, I was manic and like, I didn't know that. I didn't really know what that meant, but it, it sort of worked in the environment I was in. Like I needed to be able to chase a kid, you know, and bring him back to the group at like two in the morning or break up a fight at midnight. And, uh, somehow I was unraveling like completely. I then I thought I was, I was going insane, but I was able to do the work somehow. And then like, I just kept it quiet. I, I, I didn't know what was happening. Um, I, that, the, you know, if, if a car drove by, like I would, I would obsess with hurling myself in front of it. I would have like just constantly having really violent, uh, very, very twisted thoughts, like on a regular basis, like couldn't sit in front of someone and have a conversation, uh, you know, without, without picturing like the, the worst stuff. And I didn't know what was going on in my head. And I'm just like, well, shit, I must be going insane. Like, that's all I could conjure up. Cause I didn't want to talk to anybody about, about it. And I didn't want to have anybody tell me what was going on. Uh, and I had just see, started seeing, you know, a girlfriend and like, I didn't want to scare her. So I just kept pretending things were okay. And again, just like drinking when I needed to. And then like one day, one, I had worked for like 11 days straight and I didn't have a co-counselor in, in my group. I was just going all out, trying to, trying to manage these kids, all of whom had, who had been, they'd all been incarcerated or were foster kids. So it was a tough, tough crowd. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And I finally got off work and I had this idea in my head that, uh, I was going to go for a 50 mile bike ride. And then I was going to run, like, uh, do a half marathon after that. And I, and I was not like a biker and that was, I was just like, thought that you had like, okay, this is what I'm going to do today. What was it? Like I didn't do this stuff. Like I, I was in shape for sure. Like I, I was active, but I didn't just go, yeah, I didn't just pick up my bike and go ride 50 miles. That, that wasn't a thing, but I had. I had so much energy and was like so high that it was in my head. I was like, the only way I could get sleep tonight is if I do this much work. Tired out like a kid. And I'm tired, like literally like a toddler, you know, tiring himself out. And so I did that and I was flying and I felt like I could have run through a wall. And then like by the end of that workout, in the last mile or so, like I finally felt like quiet. I finally felt like, my mind had stopped racing and I thought like, oh, okay, this is good. I feel numb. Like I can go to sleep tonight finally. And, and I did. And I, and I woke up, you know, eight hours later in a different world. I woke up and I knew I had had episodes. I had been depressed where I thought about suicide, where I thought that like maybe life would be a little better, you know, if I wasn't here, maybe the world would be better if I wasn't here. But I woke up that morning and I knew with complete certainty that it was the worst day of my life. I knew that I had never felt anything like that. And the thing about, the thing about an episode when you're, when you have depression or bipolar, like you, you, you really believe that episodes aren't going to ever end. It's not like, oh shit, like I got a cold, it'll be gone in three days. That's not how an episode works at all. Like you really believe at that moment that that's how you're going to feel for the rest of your life. It's very, 
It's very hard to explain that, but it's unlike any, it's not a mood at all. It doesn't have like a beginning, middle and end. It is, it is, you feel like it's the way it's going to be forever. And within like a few minutes, I was obsessing with the idea that like I couldn't go on living and uh, that the only thing that would make me feel better is if like all the pain left my body in a stream of blood. That was like the image I had was, was the only thing that was going to fix anything. And uh, like, I went to find my boss because I live. So I, I needed someone to talk to. I was going crazy in my own head. So I'm like, I need to find someone to, I need someone to like put their arm around me or, or touch my shoulder and, and sort of bring me back to earth a little bit. And I find my, my boss and I, I couldn't even talk. And as soon as I open my mouth, like tears are pouring down my face and I'm, I'm, my breasts are choppy. And he goes and he finds, he's like, hey, just sit tight. Because he knew something was seriously wrong. And he found the psychologist that worked there with the kids. And he's like, I'm going to go get Mike, who's the, the psychologist. And I, but I couldn't sit still. And I was getting agitated, just being alone and not moving. So I, I, I left his office and I went to a spot in the woods behind all the buildings that like, where I, where I knew I'd be alone. And I took the knife out of my pocket and held it up against my skin. And I just thought that like, this was what I needed to do. And the last thing I remember thinking was like, that like, I remember thinking that my skin was like a lot less fragile than I thought it would be. It's stretchy and it's leathery. It's not just fragile and, and it twists and contorts. And I, so I had to press harder. And then all of a sudden Mike pops out of nowhere and he tackles me and brings me to the ground. And that's the last thing I remember. I woke up in a psychiatric hospital and that was where like, I was there for two weeks and within a couple of days of talking to doctors and getting heavily, heavily medicated. They're like, you, you've been suffering from bipolar disorder. It's alternating phases of mania and depression. And these are the symptoms you've been experiencing. And it was like, it was kind of nice to hear a name for it. Like, and I remember thinking like, okay, it's a thing. It's got a name. Like someone else has it. I'm not, I'm not going crazy. Like in this vacuum. Your persona. Yeah. And so that was good. But at the same time, and like, and this is the, you know, this is, this is, this is a really fucked up part, but like one of the first things I remember thinking when I woke up and like in a white room with, you know, a bracelet on my wrist, one of the first things I remember thinking was, oh my God, what if people find out? What are they going to think? And like, here I was like, you know, things had fallen apart so badly for me that, you know, I was lucky to be alive and I was in, in incredible pain. But my first thought was like, oh my God, what do people find out? And, um, and I say that because like that, that notion really guided my behavior for the next like decade. And I, uh, I left like eventually and I learned a few things. I left like heavily medicated and they, they gave me pills, something like they gave me pills that I still take today. I've weaned up a couple of them, but they, they had me on an mood stabilizer that I still take an antidepressant that I still take and an antipsychotic, which I stopped taking, uh, at a certain point. Uh, and I had like an operating manual. And other than that, I was like, I'm going to follow some instructions, but like, that's it. I'm not going to, not going to go to therapy. I'm not going to talk to anybody. The only person that knew was like the counselor who found me and my girlfriend at the time who like, I mentioned at the beginning of the story, my amazing, wonderful partner, like that's her. She wow. was there at this point in time and she was there for the next, the next decade too. And she's the reason that I'm here now. And so the, I didn't want anybody to know, 
and the the I, I had a I had I knew how to how to medicate myself and I knew how to treat myself uh and so I just went back to that lifeline and I was I was taking my pills like most of the time but the thing that I used to like feel better was was alcohol and so it got it got worse and worse progressively we moved back to the bay area which is like it's very easy to party it's very easy to have access to it when i started with just kind of drinking like when everybody else was drinking and then it was bringing a flask out to dinner so i could drink a little extra in the bathroom to drinking yeah i mean i'm not exaggerating i would i would I would have dozens of drinks. I'd have 30 beers over the course of like an afternoon to middle of the night bender. And then from there, it progressed into fighting and very violent situations. I was not a happy drunk. I wasn't goofy. I was like, felt a lot of pain and that expressed itself outward. And I started getting arrested. I started getting in fights, started getting in fights in jail when I was arrested. Uh, and things had deteriorated to the point where I was, I was self-medicating in a, in a extremely dangerous and reckless way. And I wasn't treating bipolar disorder in the way that you need to, to be, to be like, to be healthy and safe. And that's, and so that's where I was at, uh, you know, about, about 12 years ago. And my, my girlfriend was like, she had watched through, she had been there with me through all this. And she's like, had gotten to a point of like, I can't watch this anymore. I can't be up close and I can't be like wondering if you're coming home or wondering if I'm going to get like another call from, from jail. And I need, you know, and she was at the point of needing to step back. And so I was like kind of hanging on from with like hanging from one finger on a cliff and deteriorated. And, um, I had pretty much, I had gotten pretty comfortable with the idea that like alcohol was going to be my life partner and, I say that like very, very seriously. Like there's a point where it's, it's very, it's easy to feel like, you know what? Alcohol can't leave me. It's not embarrassed of me. It's not going to be disloyal to me. And like all my friends can leave, like my family, my relationships like that can leave, but like, I will still have you. Like that's, that's a feeling that a lot of people feel. Alcohol is very reliable like that. And so that's where I was. And uh, the last night I ever drank, I had, um, and it was, I was blacking out really easily back then. Like when, when you're really addicted to alcohol, you start blacking out very, very easily. And, uh, but usually like when people say they blacked out and when it's a term you throw around, but you always kind of remember something, you know, you remember like, oh yeah, I stopped at this place for, for food or like a couple of things. And then you stitch your, your night back together. Yeah. This one, this one was different. And I always describe it as like, pages torn out of a book there is nothing there i i had a remember a cigarette outside of this one bar and uh waking up the next morning in my apartment and i woke up and i had blood all over me and i had bruises and cuts and dried blood on my clothes and my hair and i had not the faintest clue i didn't remember like getting into a little tussle i didn't remember falling downstairs i i suspected that i'd gotten my ass kicked because that in the context of, of the last few years but i had no idea and and then I, I i started wondering how i got home right and so i and i find my keys and they got blood on them and i start thinking like oh fuck like tell someone yeah I'm, I'm freaking out and so i'm like 
let me go outside and maybe I drove like, and so I started looking for my car and I'm going like block by block trying to see if I can find my car, like hoping to God that I don't find it. And like, sure enough, I do. I see the silver bumper and it's like blood on the handle and inside. And I'm like, my heart is racing and I'm imagining every possible worst case scenario. And I run back inside and I'm like trying to looking at like text messages, receipts, trying to figure out like what the hell happened. I went on like the SFPD website, trying to see if there was like a reported accident or hit and run. Now I eventually like come down to earth and I'm like, I don't realize like, okay, that, that didn't happen. I don't think anybody was hurt or anything like that, except for me. But at that, that morning I recognized and like, it took, unfortunately it took that to, for me to recognize, but like all of a sudden I was like, oh fuck, like, I'm not just going to kill myself. Like, I'm going to take someone down with me and like, I'm going to destroy someone else's world. And like, what right do I have to do that? You know? Um, and all of a sudden it just became clear to me that I was putting people in danger, people I knew, my girlfriend, people that I didn't know. And, um, I called my girlfriend that day and I was just like, I'm done. Like I'm done. I know I've said this before cause I had, um, but I am done. And like, don't leave, stay with me. I'm going to, going to fix this. I'm going to figure this out. And she gave me a shot and like, she, she pretty much checked me into, well, I went willingly, but she found and brought me to a chemical dependency recovery program. And, um, I met a counselor there, you know, in my first meeting and told her like the last 10 years of my life and never forget her. She looked at me straight up and known this woman for 10 minutes. And she just looked at me and said, you even give yourself 30 days or you are not going to survive. And, and I believed her and, you know, something about it, it gives me chills remembering it. Like I believed her. Your own reaction. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know if this is going to be like, it's either going to be all at once, like running into a brick wall or it's going to be just wilting away over, over, over time. But like, I'm not going to survive this. Uh, and yeah, she made it clear I needed to give myself 30 days. And I, like, I, for the first time, I believed that I could do that. You know, and I mentioned at the beginning, like, it didn't start with 12 years or whatever. It started with 30 days. Uh, and I'll finish with, with this, with this, this part of the story. I like, like, it wasn't the first time I said I was going to do that. It definitely wasn't. I had made a lot of promises to myself that I was going to cut back or like moderate and I made all these rules and they all last for like a day or three days or maybe a week and I'm like I just I can't I'm gonna let myself down again and so what I did I wrote an email to like everyone I knew like my girlfriend of course and every every everybody like I met once if I had your email I you were you were on the list and I I wrote an email and I said everybody like friends family like two days ago, I got the blood all over me. And I had no idea how I got there. I know I have a problem I'm going to stop. I need to spend some time without any alcohol in my body. And if you still believe in me, like help me any way you can, or, or just, um, or just think of me, I don't know how long it's going to take. It could be 30 days. It could be six months. It could be forever, but this is, this is what I'm doing. And I, anything you can do to help, I appreciate. And cause I knew that like, I could let myself down. I didn't give a fuck. Like I could break a promise to myself very easily. And that's something that 
that addicts and alcoholics can do. Just off of all kinds of bullshit. Like, oh, I'll, I'll quit next year. I'll quit next month. It's just so easy. Our promises are paper thin, but I knew if I made a bond with everybody else, I knew I wouldn't let them down. I just had this, I'm a loyal friend. I've always been a good teammate. And, and I, uh, loyalty has just like been something that's been a part of me my whole life. And I knew if I made, if I said it out loud, I wasn't going to back down from the challenge. And I, and I think going back, like, I'm pretty sure that's what got me through it was knowing that I had promised my, my future wife and all my friends that I was going to do this. And like, it's been almost 12 years since I sent that email. So you went 30 days at that place? I went 30 days. And then I went, I went one day and then I went another. And that was pretty much how you know, I had to think about it that way. It was very much like I got to really even 30 days. Like you can't even think about 30 days. If, 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 right, if, if that, if the counselor had said, you need to stop drinking forever, it was, wouldn't have happened. I couldn't have pictured fast forward at 10 years, let alone a year. She told me 30 days and that was probably the maximum amount of time that I could have possibly imagined. Um, but, uh, yeah. So like, I just made that the challenge and then got to that point. I'm like, okay, let's do another 30 days. And at some point I got to six months and the thing that kept me going shit starts happening like good things started happening for the first time in, in forever and all of a sudden i realized like oh man like i'm like having a little bit of success professionally and like my relationship with it was like we met again for the first time and like it was like she stuck around because she had met me at a point in my life where she could see who i was really and but like by the end I wasn't even there. I mean, we'd go out to dinner and I'd be sitting across the table from her and she's telling me or confiding in me or something. And I'm literally just thinking like, okay, is it, is it time that I can get up and go get a drink? Yeah. It, it, has it been, has it been long enough or would it be weird? And I'm just going back and forth in my head, wondering, plotting out my, little, yeah, my game board of, of drinks and when I can get to the next checkpoint. And so all of a sudden without that there, it was like we met again and like our relationship and like my capacity to be in a relationship, like it just blossomed. And like that feeling all of a sudden, like that started giving me a sense of validation that what I was doing was like was incredible and I needed to stay with it. And then like I was in real estate, but like barely making enough. I, I was, I was a real estate agent, but I also had hourly jobs because I wasn't making enough to like actually have an income. But all of a sudden I started getting work done and I'm like, closing some, some transactions and getting deals done. And I was like, holy shit, like I can actually be good at this. And so I started to see like, quit drinking to survive. Like it wasn't like, oh my, I need to do better in my career. But I started to see like, once I did, I'm like, oh man, even without trying that hard, like just removing this limitation and this huge oppression that I've been placing on myself, uh, have so much more potential that's that's starting to express stuff and i was just getting started uh and then like the other piece was bipolar disorder i was actually you can't really treat mental illness when you're like, there's a reason so many there's there's a huge overlap in dual diagnosis with substance abuse disorder and, and the mental illness and like it's kind of if you listen to like the last however long i've been talking you can see why like it's mental illness is, is painful there's a stigma that keeps us from trying to get help. So self-medication becomes a great, uh, tool. And so, no, I think that that's, 
I think it's a, as, as fucked up as it may sound, it's like, it's our cry for help from to whatever we don't know what to do. And that's the thing that's easily accessible. And we know yep. it takes us out of it. Because I did the same thing. Like, I was undiagnosed. I was only diagnosed three years ago. And I went through my whole life being told I was stupid. And I, you know, couldn't do stuff. And, mm. you know, after a while, you're just trying to, like, get away from that feeling. Like, just, I don't care what else I'm going to feel. I don't want to think about these struggles in my head. And mm -hmm. it's, like, they're interwoven. They're both so damaging. And I yeah. think a lot of people with alcohol addiction probably do have a mental illness if they've never been you know never looked for sobriety or tried sobriety yeah. i think they're are you looking for a delicious and refreshing non-alcoholic beverage that won't leave you feeling tired or hungover look no further than three spirits three spirits is a line of premium non-alcoholic spirits that are made with real botanicals and natural flavors they're perfect for any occasion whether you're socializing with friends enjoying a night out or simply relaxing at home Three Spirits comes in three varieties, Livener, Social Elixir, and Nightcap. Each one has its own unique flavor profile and benefits. Livener is the perfect pick-me-up for when you need a little boost. It's made with ginger, ginseng, and lemongrass, and it has a bright, citrusy flavor. Social Elixir is the perfect mixer for when you're socializing with friends. It's made with cardamom, lavender, and orange peel, and it has a smooth, mellow flavor. Nightcap is the perfect way to wind down at the end of the day. It's made with chamomile, lavender, and vanilla, and it has a relaxing, calming flavor. Right now, you can get 15% off your purchase of three spirits with the code sober not boring. So what are you waiting for? Order your three spirits today. Visit threespiritdrinks.com to learn more and order yours. So too, I think that's I think that's very likely. And uh, you know, and, and you just you can't you can't effectively treat mental illness when you're abusing substances on a regular basis because episodes can just can just get triggered by it. I mean, if you go on a bender for a week, like you can very easily trigger a depressive episode. So it's very hard to tell the two things apart. You don't really know. You don't know how you're feeling. You don't know what, what, why you're feeling the way you do. And between the medication and the condition and um, drugs and alcohol, like it's too hard to treat it. And that's why like going back to the operating manual I got in the psychiatric hospital, one of the things they said was like, don't abuse drugs and alcohol. It's gonna trigger episodes. Like it's gonna make all of this worse. And so finally, I'm like, I'm able to identify and be a little bit more vulnerable about uh, bipolar. And like, I was able to start seeing a therapist and I still wasn't like telling anybody about it, but I was taking my pills every day consistently. I started seeing a therapist. I started making my psychiatrist appointments regularly. So I was doing a lot, a lot better. And so all of a sudden I just like started having these like green lights is, is the way I think of them. Like all these good things started happening in my life and I was in better shape and like my girlfriend didn't leave. And all of a sudden, like we were engaged uh, and work was going well. We got a dog, like all these, all these things that uh, I did, couldn't even imagine. Like How you, you have ever imagined that life for yourself back when you were young? No, it was like very much like one day at a time. And like I said, my, the life I could imagine at that time was that like my, my partner was going to be alcohol. That, like that's the life I had imagined. And yeah, at, at a certain point after like two or three years of, of uh, uh, gone back to work and I started doing well. And after about two or three years, I decided like, okay, you know what? Maybe I can go out on my own and do this. 
And I decided to, I, I was a little bit too young and probably dumb to realize how hard much work it was going to be. But I was like, oh, fuck it. I think I can start a company. And I just like kind of had this wave of confidence and, and clarity. And, and I was riding a little high off the success I'd had. And, uh, and I did it. And it was like, yeah, like I said, it was a sublet in a little room and I had one client, but I busted my ass and I had saved up a few, you know, a chunk of change from a couple of commissions I had just earned and like got, got, got a computer, got a lease, got everything I needed. And then I had two clients and pretty soon it was four. And then I had an employee and, um, yeah, I mean, 12 years later, like a little bit at a time and things just continued to build and you start to get like, you start to get a little addicted to the feeling of success. And then all of a sudden it was like, I was craving success more and more and craving alcohol less and less. It was mm -hmm. like, I wasn't going to bed thinking about like, I can't sleep without having a drink anymore. I was going to bed thinking about like, oh, what do I got to do tomorrow to mm -hmm. continue to like chip away at these goals I have. And like, it was think about it as handcuffs. Like I had these handcuffs on me and I was trying to like operate and live my life that way. And when I started drinking, that was like, I took the handcuffs off and all of a sudden I had, I had all of my faculties and I had my, the full intelligence and creativity and problem solving and ability to, uh, to work and to love my girlfriend and to go for a run and to do all the things that like started making me feel good. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. That's, that's quite the story. There's a story. Yeah. And like at a certain point in my life, I got to, I got to a point of like, okay, now that I've gotten to where I'm at and you know, I'm not by any means done. Like I'm at still, uh, plan on continuing to grow this company as, and to be as good and, and big as it can be. And, but I, one of the goals that for me popped up was like, I wanted to start being more vocal, both about recovery and both about addiction and about mental illness and like decided like, okay, I want to, I'd love to get to a point where like my story, where I could tell that story to, to me from 20 years ago and try to help nudge that person in the right direction. Because like back then I couldn't have imagined my life now, like not even the faintest hint of it, but it was possible all along. And like, I had no idea. And like that, if we, if we're vulnerable, and open and just honest about what we're struggling with and recognize like, Hey, maybe I do have a problem with, with drinking or maybe drinking because I feel depressed. And maybe I should talk to someone about that. Like the potential for happiness that we have, like we can start to tap into that a little bit. And then like from there, like who knows what's possible. And so then like about four or five years ago, I started writing a manuscript, started just spending a little bit more time thinking about, okay, how can I pass this, these ideas on to somebody so that like they can make better decisions than I did and hopefully sooner than I did. That is, is that what your book's about? Is this like uncovering the addiction? Yeah. Of correlation or is it more like a memoir? It's, 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 it's more of a memoir and like, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty much the story. And it's, there's a, there's a creative element to it. A lot of it's written in present tense, trying to, uh, in first person, trying to like really get inside the voice of someone who's suffering and right. yeah. having, having episodes going on vendors, really trying to like 
I think that we like as a society, as a community, like need to have a better understanding of mental illness and need to have a better understanding of like how it can cause addiction. And that like addiction isn't the sign of like weakness, like, oh, well, drinking because you don't know what else to do, like get over it. Like not, it's not that simple. And so the, the book is really aimed at like trying to create a sense of empathy by like really that all that story I just told you and our listeners trying to put a reader in the middle of that to understand like how painful it is to, to, to live with an untreated um, condition and to have like, to, to not use any self-care to, to treat bipolar and to treat it with an addiction instead and, and sort of like what that world was like for me. Because I think a lot of people probably recognize pieces of that, like that story, elements of it probably bring true for a lot of people or for someone they know. And like, if we can understand it, like on a broader level and more people can have empathy, then people are going to be, you know, hopefully more likely to speak up and more likely to reach out for help and less likely to stay quiet, not tell anyone they're depressed and just like nurse a drinking habit for, for, you know, the rest of their life. Yeah. I mean, we're addicted to alcohol because it's an addictive substance that was created to make us addicted to it. There's nothing wrong with us. It is depressant, right? And on top of everything else, it does to your body. So to the people that feel like they're broken or they just can't function, I mean, it's it's on a molecular level. This is why you can't think yourself out of depression or addiction because that's how it all started was up in our mind. And I think it's really important. I think... We're making big strides in the mental health area, but there's still stigma with addiction. It's, which is funny, they should be be feeling different about both, but we're just feeling empathy for addicts. And then still it's, it's the, you put yourself here. You could just stop if you wanted to kind of, uh, which is hilarious because why would we, we could stop. We would have, we didn't want to blow up our lives. Yeah. No, it's like, I mean, the, the, yeah. And the, and the pressure, like, so you mentioned like the pressure to drink too. It's weird saying like, oh no, I don't want to drink. Like, I mean, people offer, I'm sure this happens to you all the time. Like you just go out and you meet someone and they offer you a beer or a glass of wine. And like, there's that, like every time there's that like weird, awkward conversation that pops up where you're like, oh no, thanks. And they're like, you want to drink? And you're like, nah. And like, it's just, a, it's a strange moment because it always feels, it always feels a little weird every time. And like, because there's this, personally, I think that like everybody probably recognized, not everybody, I should say that, but a lot of people probably recognize that their relationship with alcohol might be like, not as in control as they'd like it to be. And so when they offer you a drink and you say, no, it makes, makes them feel uncomfortable. Yeah. And like that kind of pressure, like just makes people say yes to probably a lot more drinking than they want to do to the, to the point that like every function, every social engagement, just alcohol is like a pretty essential ingredient in it. And it can feel weird if you're not, <laughs> if you're not partaking in it. And that was, I mean, and that was like, oh man, that was a really hard part. Like the first year, especially was just like, what the fuck do I do every night? Like it's 10 PM and it's Friday. Like this is when I'm normally at a bar and like physically, mentally, like everything is screaming at me to, to get drunk. And so you just start like, I started going to the gym at really weird times. I would go to the like 24 hour fitness and there was a, you know, it's open 24 hours and I would go at 11 PM, work out till one or two in the morning, play basketball with like the 
a strange community of us that played basketball at midnight. And looking back, I wonder if they were there for the same reason I was. It was, so I needed to do that to kind of like use that time. I started, I saw like for years, I saw every fucking movie that came out. I saw the dumbest movies because <laughs> every movie that came out, I needed to occupy evenings. And so I would go to, the, I would see every movie. If it came out in like between 2010, 2015, like I probably saw it no matter what it's rotten tomato score might be. cheaper than addiction. Still very much cheaper than addiction. Totally. Yeah, no problem. No problem. And, you know, and so like, and so that was the hard part was because eventually like I reintroduced myself to like, okay, I can go to, I can go to a restaurant, go to a bar, go to a football game. I can start doing these things and like, you know, having fun. And it was hard and it wasn't as fun. And some nights were really hard, but like I would go to these things and not drink like successfully. And it took a lot of like retraining of my mind and body to do that. And that's a really hard part. Like that's where I think a lot of people struggle. It's like, okay, I'm going to spend a month uh, out of town and I'm not going to drink. And then like, when I get back, it'll be easier. But as soon as you get back and you're in those familiar settings, trying to see the same people in the same places, like you're like, oh shit, one night in. And you're like, well, I'll just have one drink. It'll be weird if I'm not drinking. And like, that's, that was very, very hard. I'll, I'll make like no you know, no two ways about it. That was one of the more difficult parts was like relearning how to socialize with people. Yeah. And you realize how many people aren't willing to socialize without alcohol. Oh, I have way less friends. Yeah. I mean, there's, all of a sudden what I realized is, is like, there was a ton of people that I never saw again because they were, they were, they were people like me. They were people that we enabled each other because we needed to, because we were sick. Mm -hmm. So we enabled each other to get really reckless, really drunk really aggressive, really whatever. And, and like, once, once that I wasn't doing that anymore, like they needed to find another, you know, enabler. And so like, yeah, the number of people that uh, I was talking to definitely, definitely shrunk, but that's probably for the better. Well, the quality, the quality increases. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Quantity decreases and I wouldn't change it. So at the end of the podcast episode, I always ask my guest to speak a little bit to who they were in their addiction. What would you say to that person now? And mm -hmm. to you, but I'd like to hear it from you. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I would go back to what I meant when, when I told you that thought I had when I woke up in a psychiatric hospital of, oh my God, what if people find out? I think I would go back to that and I would tell myself, like, I would tell myself to be vulnerable. And it's scary and it's really fucking raw, but be vulnerable so that like whatever obstacles I'm dealing with, I, I can understand them and I can get help so that I don't go down the path of self-medication or addiction or um, anything other than like the self-care that I needed. And, and that can't happen if you're not being vulnerable and honest about what you're going through. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of us drink because we don't fit in. We want to connect with other people. And I think the, yeah. the funny part is, is that we really get connection from just talking to people about, like, mm -hmm. you don't need to um, kind of conflate that with, with what happens. That's right. But um, thank you. This was, this was very eye-opening. I really want to focus more than one episode on the correlation between mental health and addiction. And I think this was a great yeah. start. I... Your story is inspirational. I hope that you see that and you give yourself the credit that you very duly deserve. I appreciate um, that. Appreciate yeah. it. Still working on it. Hey, it's a lifelong thing.
Yeah. Um, well, I have I have a website. If if anyone wants to check it out, I do a lot of writing, posts, and put my podcast there, and it's information about my forthcoming book, and it's just my name, davidshamzad.com, D-A-V-I-D-S-H-A-M-S-Z-A-D.com. Perfect. We'll put that in the show notes, too, so everybody can find you. Thanks for talking yeah. to me. Really appreciate you. And before we go, I want to thank each and every one of you for being a part of the growing Drink Sober Not Boring community. And a sincere thank you to David for not only his openness about navigating mental illness and addiction, but also his unwavering dedication to advocating for mental health awareness and addiction recovery. Together, we can all destigmatize these often misunderstood topics, lowering the barrier to asking for and receiving support for those who are still suffering. Make sure to visit www.davidchamzad.com to stay up to date on his upcoming memoir release later this year, entitled Coming Up for Air. You can follow David at David underscore Shamzad on Instagram. That's D-A-V-I-D underscore S-H-A-M-S-Z-A-D on Instagram. Don't forget to follow us on Drink Sober Not Boring and DSNB Pod. While you're at it, hit the subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode. Remember, we rise by lifting others. If you know someone who might benefit from this podcast, please share it with them. You just might be helping them find the strength they need to overcome their challenges. Remember, it's never too late and you will never be too old. Be kind to someone who needs it today and I will talk to you next week. Tired of cereal that's all sugar and no soul? Want a breakfast that fuels your day and makes a difference? Buckle up, breakfast lovers, because Seven Sundays is about to blow your mind and your taste buds. We're not just another cereal company. We're B Corp certified, which means we're serious about social and environmental good. Our upcycled ingredients, like sunflower protein from leftover seeds, fight climate change, and our pouches are made from recycled milk jugs, keeping plastic out of landfills. Basically, we're breakfast superheroes saving the planet, one spoonful at a time. But don't worry. Deliciousness is our top priority. We use whole grains, nuts, and fruits to create flavor combinations that'll have you ditching the boring flakes in a heartbeat. Plus, we partner with farmers who practice regenerative agriculture, so you know you're getting the good stuff. Ready to join the breakfast revolution? Head to www.7sundays.com. Drinks 30 or use code DRINKS30 at checkout for 30% off your first order. That's Drinks 30, so grab a spoon, pour yourself a bowl full of sunshine, and fuel your day with purpose. Because with seven Sundays, breakfast isn't just good, it's good for the good of all. Th